The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We're trekking through phase two salvation. We're making the distinctions between phase one and phase two, and I'm focusing on discipleship. I think that is the missing link in a lot of churches today. We, we kind of know that discipleship is about following Christ, but I don't think we know that when we fail in certain aspects, we're out of fellowship and we thus lose the empowering ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue with this uh, study. Begin, let's cut, but by, by way of review, <clears throat> I'd like us to see what we covered last time here. Let me see. Oh, I think I let me speed this up here. This is not twenty four. There you go. So number one, you'll recall the great teacher of Israel came to talk to Jesus at night. What was the teacher's name? Nicodemus. Point number two, you'll recall the signs prompted Nicodemus to speak to Christ. We know that God is with you because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Number three, you'll recall Jesus spoke of two births, spiritual and physical. What did Nicodemus think he had to do? Go back into his mother's womb. So he misunderstood, but he got it right. He was wrong, but he was right at the same time. You remember what, how he got it right? Because he knew that there had to be another birth. See, he got that part right. He just didn't... He was thinking physically going back into the mother's womb. That was wrong. Number four. One birth relates to spiritual birth. The other relates to physical. There are two. Remember, what happens when a person believes in Jesus? They're born again spiritually. And what do they become? We were talking about this uh, last week. Huh? Creation. New creation. Three-part person. What's that called? Trichotomist. What, what do they receive upon faith? Human spirit. So every person who is unregenerate or not born again 
is composed of two parts. What are the two parts? Body and soul. What goes on forever? And we saw that in Luke chapter 16, you recall? That there were torments in Hades. Remember that? Five, Nicodemus was the first to hear what born again actually means. Because he was exposed to John 3.16. Number six, your faith in Christ should lead you to love the brethren. Anybody remember what I meant by that or what was my passage that relates to loving the brethren? If you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. How can you love God whom you can't see when you can see the brother in front of you. Remember that? So we're commanded to love the brother who we can see. So if we're claiming to love God but we're despising the brother or sister next to you, we're in sin. We're lying. That's the argument that the scripture makes. Those in Christ should desire the word. Desire the pure milk of the word that's commanded, right? Paul instructs believers to no longer be children, meaning it is possible to remain immature or juvenile. Being tossed to and fro. So now let's move on. We know that salvation is by grace. But what do we see here in Romans 11.6? What is Paul saying here in Romans 11.6? Help me out. I'm a new student of the word. What is Paul saying here? Kind of confusing to me. Observe, observe, observe. What is it talking about? Is it talking about salvation? Is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Is it talking about heaven, hell? What do you what do you see here based on the text? I think it goes back to um, it is by grace you're saved, not of your own works. It's just re-emphasizing. Okay, so it's re-emphasizing it's by grace, not by works. See, notice if we slow it down, let me read it first for the recording. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So he's saying something here. Notice that it's not grace, it's, he's talking about not grace, not works. All in this one verse here. If by grace, then it's no longer works. If it's grace, no longer grace. If it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So there's something here that he wants us to separate. So grace is obviously coupled to salvation, and it's never coupled to works. 
Whereas works is linked to discipleship, as we've seen in our study thus far. Here Paul says that we must not mix the two into one. It's kind of like, um, have you ever, when you were younger, mixed your two favorite drinks together? Like maybe you said, uh, I like milk, I like orange juice, and mixed them together, and just see what that concoction would produce. No? How many of you go to the uh, to a fountain drink and mix Sprite and Coca-Cola or Pepsi? Sometimes it works. Sometimes what? You're like, why did I do this? This tastes nasty. Pepsi and mineral water? No way. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. You don't mix the two. They're separate. They're distinct. Grace and works cannot be mixed. And he argues this in this one verse. Salvation is by grace and discipleship is not. Another way of saying this verse here is we are not saved by doing the work of discipleship and we are not disciples by grace. They're different. They're distinct. But we are to be aware of how they relate to the spiritual life. Discipleship is hard work. Grace isn't. Grace is unmerited favor, as you know. So, discipleship begins at the moment of faith, but it is volitional and it is either rejected, abandoned, or maintained. Discipleship is a daily choice and will involve expenditure, sacrifices, and even rewards in the end. Which leads me now to a question to you all. Oh, one more thing. As long as we keep this distinction clear, we won't have to live with an inadequate grace works idea uh, resulting in lordship salvation. We don't want to blur the two, works and grace, which is what Dwight Pentecost was saying. Remember, we've been looking at his... Um, yeah, first, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. associate grace with God only. Only? No, he doesn't. Works is always associated with man, so that's clear too. That's right. Always separated. Always separated. We must make that clear because if not, we'll fall into the trap of saying, um, well, Scott, I don't see you in church every Sunday. So you are, so, you know, this whole idea of works, it has to be distinct. That's why Romans 11.6 is clear right here. By grace and it's no longer of works. We have to keep them separate. We can't blur the two. Discipleship is not about works. Believe it or not. What is disciple what drives discipleship? What should drive discipleship? That's right. Love of Jesus. Not works. Works are the byproduct of our love for Jesus. But works is not should never drive discipleship. It should be our love for God. If you love me, obey me. Right? So we have to make sure in our mind's eye we have it clear. Grace and works are distinct. 
So, going back now, here's the question. Ready? Are you a cog or a fog? It is. It's not a trick question, actually. It, the acronym COG and FOG actually means something. And if we don't, if we're not clear on this, child of God, very good. Friend of God. How many of you are a friend of God? Of course. Hold on. How does one become a child of God? How does one become a friend of God? Okay. See, we have to be clear on this. Are you a cog or fog? Anybody can be a child of God because that only requires what? Faith in Christ. Believing in Christ. But a friend of God requires much more and we need to be clear on what it means to be a friend of God. So, <clears throat> what does it take to be a friend of God? Anybody know? Someone said discipleship. Someone said fellowship. Give me a passage. You're having a Bible study at work. Someone is saying, hey, uh, Rick, help me out. Um, excuse me. I think being a friend of God is an extremely high calling. There's only a handful of people in the whole scripture that you're right in Exodus 33 and Abraham is called a friend of God but are we ever to be friends with God and if so what does it take to be a friend of God abide in him okay give me a passage we're have, I'm at your lunch break and we're having lunch right now and uh, we have a few minutes. How do I become a friend of God? I want to be a friend of God. Or is that just something for Old Testament only? Abraham and Moses. Abraham was a friend of God. Bill? He who loves me will keep my commandments. Okay. Is that a friend of God? We know that that means you love God. But what if I want to be a friend of God? Is there anything specifically that will let me know or point me in the right direction to being a friend of God? Would you like to be a friend of God? That's why the question, are you a cog or a fog? Do you want to be a fog? Do you want to be a friend of God? We, we should always be pursuing to be a friend of God. Okay. So how do we become a friend of God? There's only three three references that say friend of God. There's only three references for friend of God. So none of us can be a friend of God. I guess we're stuck with just being a cog. (laughs) All right, you're right. There's only three references to being called a friend of God. But my question is, are you a cog or a fog? So far, we're all cogs then. Children of, child of God. But can we be a friend of God? So far, three, we're called a friend of God. But can you, Debbie? Well, I think that's 
Okay. So you did look it up. Okay. Now I'm I'm all for phones and digital stuff, but you know what? I would strongly encourage you to bring this. Bring your Bible. Because we've been so fixated and so comfortable with our digital um, tablets, computers, and phones that we lost touch with holding a Bible these days. And we should get back into being familiar with the Bible. Like, where is Exodus? Where is Leviticus? Where is Malachi? It's okay if you have to look at the table of contents. But you know, there's something, I think, rewarding when you thumb through an actual Bible itself. So I have a digital phone. I like to use it too. These are tools. But we've become so lax in handling the Word of God as far as the Bible is concerned that we now depend on these more than our own memories. And it slows us down. We no longer can think properly. Are we not students of the Word? If we are, then can I encourage you to start being comfortable again with bringing your Bible and using a Bible? Because this is where it's at. Anybody can use a digital phone or a tablet. And I'm in fact, I have it myself. I use it. But there's something about having a Bible on hand that can't be, you can't beat this. So when we use this too much, we don't use this anymore. We don't have to know where the books of the Bible are because all I got to do is ask Siri, Siri, where's Exodus? But that's, that's not how we put, prioritize God. I mean, if we're in school for law or seminary like Mike, you got to study hard. Isn't that the mandate? Study and show yourself approved? So, by all means, use the tools. But there's something about having a Bible on hand that brings us back to how it was before. And I think that's something that we're missing in a lot of churches today. So if I can encourage you, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't use your phone anymore. And Debbie, I'm glad you were able to find it. But see, wouldn't it be nice if that was recall from the mind? I mean, it's good that we can look up the verses. How many verses are in, how many times does the word believe appear in John? Things like that. But for things like, well, how do I become a friend of God? Well, there's only three instances in the Bible where someone is called a friend of God. Now, you're forced to think, okay, can I be a fog? Can I be a friend of God? And so now it forces us to think through, okay, what do I know about the scripture? Bill was on, Bill was, he was on, he was very close to, uh, the friend of God in that passage in John. He who loves me obeys me. That's even deeper. That's beyond a friend, right? He, he who loves me obeys me. If you love me, obey me. So, let's look at, let's start with John 112. Being a child is the result of what, according to John 1.12? 
John 1.12 But as many as received him, what did he do? He gave the right, the privilege to become children of God. So what does it mean to receive him? Very good, Austin. To receive is imputed righteousness. But if someone were to say, well, Austin, how do I receive Christ? I mean, what do I have to do to get that righteousness, imputed righteousness? What do I do? Could it be right before our eyes and we just don't see it? Look at the verse. Observe, observe, observe. What does it say? Look at entitlement. Is that do you see anyone see the word entitlement here? Believe. Believe. Notice what it says in the text. Observe, observe, observe. I'm going to slow it down, and I'm going to make I'm going to make some intonation. I'm going to change the intonation of my voice for emphasis. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in him, in his name. So to receive is to believe. Right there in verse 12. You see that? As many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Those who believe in his name is par- parallels receiving him. You see that? As many as received him, he gave the right to those who believe in his name. So right there, in right underneath our noses, it's right there. To receive God is to believe in him. Believing is receiving. Receiving is believing. Right there in front of you. So what else have we been missing if we didn't see this under our nose? The chariots? The wheels coming off the chariots? See, it's all about paying close attention to the text of Scripture. So this allows us to be what? A fog or a cog? Cog. Child of God. As many as received Him, He gave the right to become cog, children of God, to those who simply believe in his name. So, now the question is, what is required to be a friend, a fog now? And Debbie kind of gave us the answer to that. It's found in John. What passage is it? I... I 15, yeah, John 15, 14. You would add verse 15 as well. Yes. See, uh, it's there in front of us. I just did not, uh, I guess it came off the screen, but it says John 14, 15. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you what? 
Friends, for all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So what can we tell from 14 and 15 about the idea of friends with Jesus? What do we see here, right in front of us? Observe, observe, observe. What's required to be a friend of Jesus? Do what he commands you. Contextually, he's talking to his disciples here. But by transference, because of where we are today, this applies to us as well. So what else? We are to obey his commands. What else do we, what else do we notice uh, in verse 15? Well, if you go and he says, no longer I call you servants, mm-hmm. possibly means I'm not looking at what you do as works. Okay. It says the servant just knows what his ma- doesn't know what his master is doing, so they just go along doing their chores, their works, with nothing connected to it. Okay, very good. But I call you friend now for all the things that I heard from my father I have made known to you are you listening to me so that element of friendship involves what listening Listening. what else huh Communication. communication notice what else it says I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. So that intimacy, that friendship is talking and sharing something that originally belonged to him is now being shared with his friends. Isn't that what friendships do? Isn't that what friends do? We get together, we have coffee and we talk about things. We're sharing something. We're sharing our life. He's sharing the things that he heard from his father. He has made it known to them. He's making it known to us. Do you see that? Is verse 14 and 15 a continuous uh, additive 14? Yes. It looks like it's your friend, my friends, when I do what I command. Mm -hmm. You can. And the second one is saying, hey, you have the capability of being my friend all the time. You can do it. That's right. So that's a possibility in 15. Is that correct? Correct. So you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. However, I've called you friends because you're not a servant anymore because now the things that I've heard from my father, I'm revealing it and sharing it with you. And that's coming as a result of that fellowship which is talked about in John 15 in the opening of John 15. So it's building and it's he's unpacking this idea of what it means to be in fellowship with God. Abiding in me, I in you. This is how my Father is glorified. You bear much fruit. You are my friends if you do whatever I say, whatever I command. This is rich. Actually, it's dense with meaning. No longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But you guys know what I'm doing. That's another way of saying, look, you're not just servants anymore. 
Because servants don't know what his master is doing. Am I your master? Yes. Do you know what I'm doing? Yes. I've been mentoring you. I'm preparing you for the future. And what happened in John 14? We saw he was. they were troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. In my house are many mansions. If this were not so, I would have told you. Don't be worried. So here he says, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but you obviously know. Why? Because you're my friends. But, he reiterates, you are my friends if you do whatever I command. So are you a cog or a fog? That's a question that we all have to ask ourselves in the privacy of our own hearts and souls. He's revealed to us what the Father has said. Okay? Yes? So, he says, if you love me, you obey my commands. Mm -hmm. He also says, if you obey my commands, you abide in me. Right. He also says, if you do my commands, you're my friends. Mm -hmm. So, if you are abiding in Christ, you are his friend. Yes. So, So, no, you're, you're connecting the dots now. You're seeing that there's an inner connection between the three, but... In each instance, depending on the context of the verse, there is going to be a shade of additional meaning. So, for example, with the branches and the vine, that idea is fellowship. Staying in Him, remaining in Him, in fellowship, so that you can be productive. You can produce and bear much fruit. Production there. Now, walking is a completely different concept, but it's related. What does walking do? If you walk by means of the Spirit, that's right. So walking relates to dealing with the sin nature. Walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear. You're going to have a productive life. You're going to be busy for God. You're not going to have to struggle and try, oh, i got to be a Christian because i got to do this. No, abide in Him. Is he your priority? Are you prioritizing your relationship, your fellowship with him? And if so, the natural byproduct of production will flow easily. You don't have to try. Remember the first earlier this year when I first started preaching and teaching here, I said to be a Christian is not hard. It's impossible. Hopefully you're starting to see what I mean by that now. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You need His empowerment. All of these are interrelated. They're all interconnected. Abide, walk, love, obey, friend. So we have to look at each of these and study it closely. What does it mean to be a friend of God? What does it mean to obey God? What does it mean to love God? And you study that. Open your Bible. Don't don't use your phone, but open your Bible and now get into it and say, okay, to be a friend of God means I do whatever He says. How many commands are in the New Testament? 1,050. How many in the Old Testament? 613. How many of the New Testament commands do you know? How many of you know that if you know to do good and you don't do it, it is sin? 
So, do you think we're spending a lot of time in fellowship or out of fellowship? Out of fellowship, I would say. So, if we don't know His Word, if we don't know what He commands, more than likely we're, we're striking out. And if that's the case, we're not friends of God. We're children of God, but we're in direct violation to His Word. Thus nullifying the empowering ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that could be ours. So what does that look like? Peace that surpasses all understanding. Stability. Being able to think properly when you're hit with a crisis, when you're hit with a problem, when you're hit with a trial. You're facing Red Sea this way, Egyptians over here, and Pharaoh. What do you do? Stand still. Complete opposite of what human nature tells us. We want to fight. We want to clench our fists. We want to take our firearms and fight back. God says what? Be still. Don't move. Why? Because that requires faith and I get to do what I do best. If you're going to stress out and violate Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, I can't do anything. You're either going to let, you're either going to cast your cares upon me and let me do what I promised I would do, or if you want to take matters into your own hands, have at it. Stress out all you want. Get all the ulcers in your stomach, compromise your health, have your relationships fail. It's up to you. You don't want me a part of your life? Go ahead. Either I cohere, keep all things together, cause all things to work together for good, or you try to make it work. That's what we see repeatedly in the Word of God. So again, I'm all for, and I know your our background here is, we have a doctrinal bent. We have this exegetical approach to the Word. But there has got to be a merging of not only exegetical studies, but the application to the truths that are revealed in simple terms as seen here. What do you have to do to be his friend? Obey his commands. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we're so fixated on parroting what we've heard from tapes and and MP3 recordings and we don't apply this to life, then don't be, don't complain if you are not stable. Don't complain if your life is awry and falling apart. Because it's not the inculcation of information that we need, it's the execution of it. What good is it to have all this information? You might be able to uh, quote it top to bottom, but Satan can do that. Did he not fight with Jesus at, in Matthew chapter 4? He knew all of Scripture, but he was distorting it. So, I'm saying, brethren, that as I came out here with my wife and son, I did not know exactly what God had in store for us. But I know that I I had made a promise to God that wherever He sends us, I'm willing to go. And that story alone is based on faith. You've, you've not, probably not heard the story and maybe one of these days we'll be able to get together and I'll explain more about the specific details. My wife knows it better than I do. But I say this because we have to stand and act out on faith. It's all about faith. We're a local church here. 
So we've got to take these things and do whatever He commands of us and make application to life. We want to grow the church. It's going to be the direct result of our involvement with, with reaching out to people, telling them about our ministry so that they too can be exposed to the Word of God. So now let's move on to something else here. James 4.4 4. I want you to see that there's something else beyond being a friend of God. You can also be an enemy of God. Please notice in James chapter 4 verse 4. You might be surprised in hearing that a child of God can actually be an enemy of God. Now, when I, having said that, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Okay? You can be an enemy of God, but you will never, ever lose your salvation. Because that remains intact. But what you do lose are the benefits that comes with walking with Him, abiding in Him. Okay? Answered prayer and the rest. So please look at James 4.4. Ms. Aaron, could you read James 4.4? 4, 4? Sure, sure. <clears throat> um, and he has passed... Oh, that's John. <laughs> okay, I'll read it. Okay. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? <clears throat> Enmity with God. What's that mean? Enmity. Hostility. Hostility. That's not a good thing. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That puts you at odds with God when you are friends with the world. Now, that does not mean you can't have unregenerate friends, unbelieving friends. But if you buy into their system, it's the whole idea of human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint, right? Human viewpoint keeps God out of the equation all the time. So here, he makes a very strong claim, or he says something very strong here. Do you not know that friendship with the world puts you at odds with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself, what? An enemy of God. So as a child of God, he's talking to believers in James, brethren, you can be an enemy of God. In fact, he uses the strongest words here, adulterers and adulteresses. Please notice in James 4.4. 4. So, he's basically saying the same thing in John 15 where he says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you, but slightly differently because James adds that we are enemies of God if we are friends of the world. So, worldliness and godliness cannot coexist. Worldliness is led by Satan and the believer is worldly when he opts for human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint. But notice the words adulterers and adulteresses. Why does he, why do you think he uses that, uh, figure? It's pretty harsh, wouldn't you say? Because it's a covenantal 
Covenantal relationship, exclusiveness, right? So the nature of marriage is exclusiveness and adultery is a violation of that condition. A person who is saved has an option. They can either be an enemy of God or they can be a friend of God. The truth is it's depressing knowing that there's countless people who are saved and will continue, that will wind up being in heaven but have made no effort to be the friend of Christ. When we understand that all it takes to have salvation is faith in Jesus, but it takes obedience to be his friend, that's the time that the Bible starts to come alive and start popping. We start to realize, okay, there's more to it than believing. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie in his book, So Great a Salvation, at the very end of the book said, after salvation, what? There's a few books out there. After salvation, now what? We're to be a friend of God. It doesn't stop at salvation. It doesn't stop at being a child of God. We should advance. We should grow. No longer being children tossed to and fro. We should go into adulthood by studying the Word of God, abiding in the Word of God, applying the Word of God, obeying God, loving God. All of these terms, although interchangeable and sometimes synonymous, has merit and can stand on its own and is is a study all on its own. For example, abide. The word meno. What does that mean? You could take a great deal of time unpacking that word abide. It's kind of like salvation. How many tenses are in salvation? Three. How many aspects are there? Three. What about faith? How much, how many, how many types of faith are there? One. But there's a, I'm now seeing there's a phase, faith one, phase two kind of faith, but that relates to salvation. Phase one, Faith relates to a one-time deal. Phase two kind of faith relates to a daily use of your faith in God. The application of doctrine. So please notice, it is possible to be an enemy of God even as a child of God. How? If you prioritize and put worldly things above God himself. That doesn't mean you can't have unbelieving friends. It just means that you're keeping God out of the picture. When you look contextually at what James is arguing here, he's saying in the book of James, faith without works is dead. You have all this faith, which in my opinion, I think that's related to doctrine. All this doctrine without works is dead or useless. So what good is it to have all this doctrine, Freddie, but you don't use it? Someone comes to you, it needs clothing, needs food, and you say, be warm and filled. Faith without works is dead. Even the demons believe. So you see all of these things, and then Lordship guys hit us, saying, see, you guys are so lax. That's why your church is so small, because you don't put the fear of God in people's life. That's not how you do it, though. We have to handle the Word of God accurately and see what it says. Is it possible to be an enemy of God? Yes. As a child of God, yes. Will you lose your salvation? No, of course not. Once a child, always a child. You can't undo spiritual birth. 
You had nothing to do with it to begin with, and there's nothing you could do to undo it. So now let's go to this verse. <clears throat> what do you see here in John 6:47? We have three more hours left, so. What's it say here? Take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. If you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. Okay. If you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. So the words believe and faith are really the same Greek word when you look it up. So this verse is talking about salvation. I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. But... There's another way to use faith. Did you know that? Let's unpack this. Galatians 2.20 Help me out. What do you guys see here? Observe, observe, observe. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Anyone see the two purposes of faith here? It's unique in this one verse. Internal change once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. Anything else that you see there? Anyone? What else is taking place here? There's two counterparts, two counterparts in Galatians 2.20. Okay, a practical faith. Okay. Do you see something there, Marty? I think you're onto something. Right. Phase one. But then you also have to apply faith every day. Okay. In daily walk. Do you see that here? Do you see it here? Well, he says, the faith I now live, ah. live in the flesh is to me like the... You're right. You know, my, my walk every day. That's right. It, it, it's right there. You, you, you hit it on the head, Marty. You got it. Isn't this the application of faith? Isn't he telling us to apply faith? Look at what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. What do we call that? What kind of truth is that? Salvation, Salvation truth. It, it starts with a P. PT. Not pastor teacher. <laughs> Positional truth. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. There's faith. That's the counterpart. I've been crucified with Christ. I've placed my faith in Christ. But now it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm living and walking by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I've been placed my faith in God, in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, phase one, like Marty said. Phase two is Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, right here, I live by what? I live by faith. So every time I go out there, I'm trusting in God. I'm applying faith that when we go home, God is going to take care of my wife and my son as we go to Fort Belvoir. We're going to be safe. Is that faith? Yes. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the application of doctrine. Application of God's Word. So I've been crucified with Christ when? 1981, when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I've been crucified with Christ since then, but ever since then, I live in the flesh, I'm struggling in the flesh, but I live by faith in God the Son, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice how Paul couches this. I'm living by faith. I'm living and I'm putting my faith in the Son of God who loved you and me and gave himself up for you and me. Do you guys see that or am I just fabricating this? Does he love you? Did he give himself up for you? It's all right here. Were you crucified with Christ? Yes, when you place your faith in him. But it's no longer I who live. Who lives in you now? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, this new life, is lived out in faith. Romans 8.11 The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Now it's Jesus living in you. The Holy Spirit is living in you. Your human spirit is in you at the moment of faith. And now you can interact with God the Holy Spirit because you now can understand spiritual phenomena. An unregenerate person, it's foolishness to them. The message of the cross is foolishness to them who, who are perishing. But to us it is what? First Corinthians 1.18 Look at what it says there. Read, read it please, someone. Please notice what 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the Word of God is to the believer. This is what we need. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message... For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of Ooh. God. How many of you need power? but to us who are being saved what do I mean I thought we are saved why is it saying to those who are being saved phase two, phase two salvation observe the text we are being saved today right so we're not done yet we are being to those who are being saved it is the power of God what's the power of God the message of the cross, which comes from the Word. This, right here, the Word of God. So if you need power, while everyone else is laughing at it, when Rick's sharing to his neighbor, 
and they're laughing at Rick, Rick knows it's power for him because as he's intaking it, inculcating it, he is being transformed into the image of Christ. That's power. The Word of God is what? Alive and powerful. Do we believe that? Do you see it in your life as powerful? You may or may not because it depends if you're a cog or a fog. And I don't say that jokingly. I mean, that's that's serious. You will only know if the Word of God is really powerful if you're a friend of God, not a child of God only. Are you just a believer or are you advancing into discipleship? If you're advancing into discipleship, if you're an ambassador of Christ, then you're impacting the people around you in your periphery. Your vertical relationship with God will dictate what your horizontal relationships will be like. Because now you know what the Word of God has to say and you can interact with each other. So that when you're going through hardship, you can sit there and say, well, I remembered in our class the other Sunday, uh, Exodus, that God annihilated the Egyptians and Pharaoh. All they had to do was just stand still. They were freaking out and God was sitting there unpacking and removing the wheels of the chariots. That's confidence in His Word. That's now taking the Word of God and inculcating it in your soul so that when you're standing all by yourself and no one else is around you, you have something to stand on. God is sovereign. And you can just, you can say, oh, the essence of God, this and that, omniscient, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. But if you don't really believe that and if you don't have the details from God's Word stored up in your soul, you're not going to have stability. You need that in your soul so that you can flex that when you are going through hardship. You're going through a medical condition? Does God have this? Yes, He does. Is He the great physician? Yes, He is. Do you believe that? Well, I mean, I'm going through hardship right now. I mean, the doctor said I don't look good. So what? What does God say? Now, I'm not making light of the conditions that we go through, but I'm trying to amplify who we're trusting in so that faith can be utilized during the times of crisis. Because we miss out many of times. I think we, we get to the very end and before we give it to God, we, we stop, we run back, we take the problem back into our own hands. We should learn how to give it to God. Now I'm going to stop here because I think I'm out of time. I only have three hours left and I don't want to... So I'll save this for next week and the following Sundays. But this is where we will stop on Galatians 2.20. And so let's close in a word of prayer. And I hope you picked up a few things and I hope you're seeing that discipleship is much more than just being a believer in Him. Okay? Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to examine your word. Your word is rich and full. And we're grateful, Father, for the information that we're able to look at and to study closely. And I pray that this would not just be for academic purposes, Father. It's so easy to quote verses left and right and to be able to show all the books that we have in our library, but the application to the things that we've studied is where it's at. It's the difference between being born again and being a friend of God. So help us, Father, through exposure to your word 
through the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to be doers of your word, not just simply hearers. Thank you for this opportunity to be with the brethren here at National Capital Bible Church. I look forward to seeing how you're going to continue to work amidst all of us. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen.